one, two, one, two, jazz saxophonist, music educator, and 2014 NEA Jazz Master, Jamie Abersold, playing the saxophone accompanied by his play-along. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. In 1967, with the production of his first play-along recording and book, Jamie Abersold began a new form of jazz education, founded on the belief that anyone can improvise. Abersol created a series of volumes that each feature a selection of 10 to 12 jazz standards, though some do focus on scales or standardized chord progressions. The recordings normally feature a professional rhythm section, typically piano, bass, and drums, performing an improvised accompaniment without a solo instrument. For example, at the top of the show, we heard Jamie play B-flat blues. Here's the play-along that accompanied him. Now once again, here's Jamie improvising with his play along. As you can hear, the play-along allows one to improvise with a rhythm section, in effect playing with professionals and noted jazz musicians, creating an interactive jazz environment in a classroom, living room, or street corner. To date, Abersalt has produced 133 volumes of the play-along, carving a new avenue for jazz education. Since 1977, Jamie Abersold has been director of the Summer Jazz Workshops, which provide intensive training in jazz improvisation for musicians at all levels. Housed at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, the Summer Jazz Workshops have been held in eight countries and feature an element of jazz education that Abersold has long advanced, the value of small group combos. All the while, Abersold hasn't given up performing. He leads the Jamie Abersold Quartet, he also runs Jamie Abersall Jazz, which publishes and sells an extensive selection of educational materials for jazz. Given the arc of his long career, it's little wonder that Jamie Abersalt has been chosen for the 2014 A.B. Spellman NEA Jazz Master's Fellowship for Jazz Advocacy. I spoke with him recently in his home in New Albany, Indiana. I was curious how he first came up with the idea of the play-along. I think I came up with the idea of a play-along out of desperation. When I was young, especially uh, junior high school and high school, I didn't have anybody really to play with. We started this little band, but we just kind of rehearsed arrangements. But I wanted something to solo with. I wanted to play with the blues, and I wanted to try Cherokee, and I remember April, and songs that I heard Charlie Parker and other people playing. So, uh, Music Minus One, a company that's still going, Irv Kratka in New York, Music Minus One, he had them originally but he had soloists playing along. For instance, a famous person would play two choruses, then they'd leave two choruses of blues for you to play, and then the other soloists would come back in again. But I said, I don't want that. I want five minutes of blues in the key of B flat, 
five minutes of blues in the key of F so we can practice with it. And I thought it would be good. So I think I made the record first, about 40 minutes. And then I said, oops, if somebody buys this LP, they won't know what to do with it unless I write a book. So I wrote a book, tried to explain how in the world somebody out in Podunk, Iowa can play with this LP record. But I think it was just out of frustration in the beginning to have something to play with. And I really didn't, when I put out the volume one and got the book going and put a little ad in Downbeat magazine and took around to some local music stores and so forth, I had no intention of doing volume two, let alone volume 133. And we started that way. And then after a couple of years, we put out the blues, volume two, nothing but blues. We really took off with volume six, Charlie Parker. I got the rights to do eight of his songs. Then we did some Miles Davis tunes and some Sonny Rollins tunes and the rest is history. Just gradually got the rights to tunes and so forth and put them out and everybody loved them. Who uses play-alongs? Everybody uses them. Everybody uses them. Band directors use them. Individuals use them. Old people use them. Young people use them. People, classical musicians who want to dabble in jazz on their own privately in their uh, music room or their bedroom, you know, and they won't be embarrassed if they play wrong notes and so forth. I don't think there's a second that goes by that somebody's not playing with a Jamie Abrams or a play-along record somewhere around the world. Jamie, when did you know that, okay, I'm doing a series now? Was it volume six and from then on you just knew more would be coming out? I didn't know when the series was going to take off, no. I just knew that once we had done several, that there was a big need for this. But each time I put one out, it took a lot of work. And it took me away from practicing and so forth because I had to do proofreading and recording and this, that, and the other. It takes a lot of work and a lot of money, a lot of time. But once we got it going, then I realized these are really important parts of the jazz educational process. Have the play-alongs changed over time? Is, is volume one pretty similar to volume 133? Volume one is pretty much the same as it's been since 1967. We've re-recorded the music several times. And about a year and a half ago, we took that original LP, which is, of course, now on CD, and slowed the temples down to make it uh, more advantageous for younger people or inexperienced people to play with it. When I started out, it was just something for people who already played to have something to play with. And then jazz education started in the late 50s and through the 60s, so you've got a lot of younger people playing with volume one and trying to play with volume six. So it's evolved, I've evolved as the need has evolved over the years. When you were a kid growing up, was there music in your house? Oh yeah. My mom played the piano and she sang and my dad played the banjo, played a little piano. Yeah, there was always music. We didn't eat breakfast or lunch or dinner without my dad putting a stack of 78s on the record player. Did your father play a musical instrument? Yeah, my father played the banjo and he played the piano. And my mother sang and played the piano. And my father was in a banjo group called the Indiana Banjoliers. Uh, so once a week, three other people would come over and they'd rehearse the four banjos. And when did you start studying music? I started taking piano lessons when I was five years old. Uh, I've got two brothers. One was four years older and one was four years younger. And the one older started playing the piano and I wanted to take real bad, but they didn't let me. So they waited about a year and then they said, okay, Jamie, you can take the piano. So I started taking piano lessons and I played uh, five years. And then my piano teacher fired me. What happened? Uh, I guess I wasn't practicing enough. She said, gave me my two dollars back one day and said, Jamie, you go on home. You'll never be a musician. You don't want to practice. Did you want to practice? I didn't want to practice what she wanted me to practice. 
just reading stuff out of the book, classical things, little tunes and things. So I uh, went home and made the natural switch to tenor banjo that my dad was playing and started taking lessons on it. Were you drawn to music or did your family just expect you to, to play music? Where was this impetus to play music? Where was it coming from? I guess it was from me, yeah. This impetus to play music came from me. I liked music. I just didn't like practicing the piano. So I played piano and then I played the banjo. And my brother was, older brother was playing the alto sax and he kind of quit so I took it over. And uh, then I joined the uh, grade school band in the sixth grade but I thought it was pretty boring because I'd already learned how to read music and so forth and I guess the other kids were beginners. And then uh, in junior high school I figured that's, that was really going to be neat. But it wasn't so neat because they were doing the same thing. I was busy listening to records at that stage in my life and I loved the jazz had intrigued me because I couldn't figure out how people were playing what they were playing without music in front of them. And I knew they weren't playing uh, memorized solos. So I couldn't figure out where all these great solos were coming from. Of course, it was coming from their mind and years and years of practice. Was there any artist or particular song that just stood out for you at that moment that you would listen to over and over and over again? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of them. I can remember Ted Heath, a big band from uh, London, UK, and they played, had an arrangement of Sweet George and Brown. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But then there were combo groups, Kid Ori, a uh, Dixieland trombonist. I played that over and over. Then I gradually graduated into uh, the bebop era, like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. And man, I, I was left behind. I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. But I was intrigued by it. So I started buying more and more records and listening. When you started college, you went to Indiana University and you studied the saxophone. So at that point, had you already decided you would have a career in music? Yeah, but I hadn't decided what I was going to do. I, I was going to be in music. I thought I was going to go to the Manhattan School of Music and study classical saxophone until the guy finally wrote me back after a couple months and said, we don't offer the saxophone. So then I told my parents, I guess I'm not going to New York to go to school because that was the seat of jazz. I wanted to be there. And I heard a friend of mine who was going to Indiana University. He said, they're jamming in the halls. So that to me meant there must be some jazz going on there, and that's only 100 miles away, so I guess I'll go there. So I went there, and when I got there, they told me they didn't offer the saxophone either. So I took a woodwind degree. I studied oboe, bassoon, flute, clarinet, and they let me take lessons on the saxophone from the clarinet teacher the first year. Did you have your own band at that point? I had a band in high, high school, yeah, we were called the Nighthawks. And we Good played name. about every week, yeah, Nighthawks. And we played every weekend, three or four dollars, five dollars, you know. We played a lot of these animal clubs like the Moose, Elks, Lions Club, places like that. And we enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. We had a good time. But when I got to college, I kind of gave up that little band. And the first year of college, I don't think I played much with anybody. But then after that, I started playing with various people at the sorority and the fraternity houses and so forth. Still trying to learn jazz kind of on my own because they weren't teaching any at IU. They finally started a big band, jazz band. What did you see as your life's plan? My life's plan after I graduated from college was to eventually make my way to New York and make a Blue Note record. And why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? 
And finally, many years later, volume 38 is the Blue Note Play Line record. But that wasn't what I meant to do. What did you end up doing? Well, I got married uh, while I was still at graduate school, and I was teaching privately in Seymour, Indiana, $2 for a half-hour lesson, teaching flute, clarinet, saxophone. And I enjoyed it. When I graduated, my wife and I moved down here, and we uh, lived a block from where we are right now in an apartment that my dad had. And I worked at the florist, and then I'd come home and give private lessons. And the private lessons gradually grew to where I had enough people that were interested in jazz. These are all high school students. And they would come and form a combo on Monday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, and so forth. And some of those people that came through my combo have become very famous and have made a living playing jazz. Now, I had read, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you had decided that you didn't want to teach, that you mm -hmm. were going to be a performer and you were not going to be teaching. Nope. First, why were you so adamant about not teaching and then what changed your mind? Well, I was really adamant about it because when I was at IU, in the practice rooms practicing, I would hear other people practicing their trumpet or sax or trombone or clarinet or flute, and they were going to be music educators. And I just didn't think the standard was very high. So I, for some reason, stupidity, I guess, I told everybody that I wasn't going to be an educator because I didn't want to be like them. I wanted to play better than they played, you know. And I, if that's education, then I don't think they're going to be very good conveyor of what education is. Little did I know that I was going to end up being an educator, but a different educator, you know. But that's where that came from. And I can remember in the spring of the year when this guy came up to me in the parking lot. His name was Gene Montooth. He played tenor and he played oboe. And he never really spoke to me. But he said, Jamie, I want to ask you a question. He said, uh, I'm teaching privately down at Seymour, about 40 miles from Bloomington, on Saturdays. $2 for a half-hour lesson. If everybody shows up, you make 20 bucks. Would you like to do it? I got a job teaching high school in the fall and I, I've got to stop. And I can still see myself standing there and going back and forth in my mind. I told everybody I'm not going to teach. I told everybody I'm not going to teach. But I finally said, well, I don't think this is really teaching. You know, private lessons isn't teaching. Besides, I need the money. I'm getting married. So I took the job and loved it. You loved teaching right away? Oh, yeah, right away. I realized right away I didn't know much about it, but I was going to learn. As a matter of fact, there was a girl there. I forget what her name was. She was Dr. Black's daughter, and she played the flute. And one day, I don't know how long into my teaching there, we got through with our lesson in about 20 minutes. So I said, why don't you play across this scale? Just improvise for me. I didn't even use the word improvise. I said, just play whatever you hear. And then there was a piano in the room, so I'm playing some background. She starts to play, and I realize she's playing exactly what she hears in her head. She's improvising. Her phrases make sense, and she's playing jazz. She's improvising. But then another part of me said, but um, she's not a jazzer. She doesn't have a big record collection. She doesn't drink coffee. And she's not grumpy. How could she be playing jazz? That's what went through my mind. I was probably about 21 years old. And then I asked other people if they would do the same thing. And I found out everybody can improvise if you show them what scale to play and play a little background for them. Tell me what you mean by improvisation. Taking what you hear in your head and playing it on your instrument. And if you don't have a lot of facilities, then you're not going to play much. So having the musical foundation, scales, chords, it's crucial because you need the elements of a language in order to be exactly. able to express yourself. Exactly. Or else you're going to be flying by the seat of your pants and playing by ear. And that would allow you to play certain songs, but as the songs get a little more difficult, then you're going to be left out. You're going to have to play that song over and over until you finally hear what the chords and scales are. And nowadays people don't have time to sit and play that for you while you learn. That's why we have the books 
You use the left side of your brain, your eye looks at the music and says, oh, that's a certain scale, that's a certain scale. Oops, what's that scale there? I better practice that one, I better think about that. You have been a great proponent of improvisation for musicians. Can you talk about why you are, what you think the ability to improvise gives musicians? Oh, I know what it gives them. It gives them freedom of expression. And most people, even if you're a classical musician and playing an orchestra and so forth, and say that you don't want to improvise, I know deep down inside you, you would like to improvise. It's like talking. Why would you want to say the same sentences over and over and over, you know? Uh-uh. It's more fun to make up sentences. And that's what goes on with the improvisation. So my mind was saying anybody can improvise if, if you show them what scale you're going to play on and give them a little background. When most people are comfortable and not afraid, they play fine. So a fear of doing something wrong right. keeps people from improvising. Oh, yeah. The two things I've found that keep people from even trying to improvise are they're afraid they'll get lost and stop at the wrong time. And then the other thing is playing a wrong note or maybe several wrong notes. In other words, when I improvise, if I decide to improvise first time, it's got to be perfect. Now, where that idea came from, I don't know. But it's kept a lot of people from trying to improvise. Now, some people might say, how can there be wrong notes in improvisation? <laughs> how can there be wrong notes in improvisation? Well, I guess it depends on how deeply you're listening. But the more you listen, and the more you listen, you can tell that it all, it fits together. The piano's listening to the bass, the piano and the bass are listening to the soloist, the soloist is listening to them. It's like a basketball game. Jazz is like a basketball game. You know what's going to happen. You're going to come down the court and you're going to try to score. You don't know who's going to score. And you don't know how quickly it's going to score. If it's an NBA, you know you've got 24 seconds to do something or the ball's going to go to the other end. In jazz, you don't, you're not limited by time. And we hope that what you're going to do is take the listener on a musical journey from point A to point B. In your teaching, you move the focus away from big bands to small combos. Why, why the shift? The idea of uh, the individual in jazz has always been interesting to me because I wasn't someone that wanted to just play a part. I wanted to sometime to be able to stand up and take a solo. And I kind of thought everybody else wanted to do that. So when I started teaching with the big bands camps in 1965, that went on for about four or five years, and I really enjoyed it. But even then, I incorporated jam sessions at dinner time, right before dinner with the more advanced students at the camp. I would say, hey, would you want to get together and jam? And then I, I started a listening session for an hour right before the evening concerts because the students didn't know who these players were. And I would play records for them and so forth. That all evolved into the combo camps in about 1971 or 72, where everybody that came to the camp for that week, they were going to play in a combo. And on Friday, everybody's going to stand up and take a solo. Drummers, bass players, you name it. Whatever instrument you brought to the camp, you're going to play in a combo throughout the week and then you're expected to solo at the end of the week instead of having just several people stand up out of the big band. You know, because back then, big bands were becoming more and more popular in the late 50s and 60s in high schools. So they were getting that big band experience there, but they weren't getting the improvisational experience. So that's why we started the combo camps. They became so popular that they stopped the big band camps and had combo camps in the summertime. One oh. year, we did seven week-long camps around the country. How many students do you reach out to with the combo camps? Well, the combo camps, we, we do two of them back-to-back -back every year. And we do them at the University of Louisville, just across the river. And this year, we had almost uh, 600 people. People want to learn how to improvise. And we've had more and more older people come to our camps over the years.
above 21 years old. We've had people in their 80s. And we've had some people come to our summer jazz workshops 20 years in a row. So it's not like you learn how to do it and then you stop going to camp or you stop learning. It's, it goes on forever. There's always more things to learn. What's the value of an intensive experience like the combo camp? I think it opens up to people their potential that they didn't realize were there. And the other thing is they get to play with other people, which they don't do at home. And plus they go to theory class. We have five theory classes, I think. They learn what they don't know and how to apply what they don't know, how to practice at home. It's, it's a big experience. There have been studies that have shown a correlation between the study of music and achievement in other fields. Can you talk about the importance of music study? Well, I think all the recent studies on music study, not necessarily jazz, imply that it's going to help you the rest of your life in making decisions. The fact that you have to use your imagination is extremely important, and this doesn't mean that you're going to end up being a jazz musician or playing a symphony. Uh, but there's articles that say if you study music, it helps you to become a well-rounded individual, period. There's the ability, as we mentioned earlier, that will have to benefit you in any, any endeavor you take, which is to be able to listen. If you study music, it, it encourages you to listen. Now, I will say this. In teaching jazz, I don't know what percent, but there's a percent of people that I will listen to for the first time and they might be an intermediate or advanced player, but I distinctly get the feeling they are not playing what they hear in their head. And those students are the ones that I have to grab by the back of the neck and say, now listen, you got to stop, play fewer notes, leave some space, and don't play unless you hear that note that you're playing in your mind first. It takes a lot of discipline for someone that's used to playing to back up and go to the first grade note-wise. But if they'll do it, it'll pay them dividends the rest of their life. You've been involved in jazz education for half a century. Wow, that's a long time. How would you like to see it move forward? We're, I would like to see jazz education produce people that can improvise, have fun with music, and if possible, make a living doing it and spread the word to other people because it's so much fun to play. It's, it's really fun. Having fun is very important to you, for, your, for other musicians, for the students you teach. That's something that you try to impart yes. to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't want to spend all this time on something and not be happy. Is that what you mean when you say that you really have a holistic approach to teaching? I think so, yeah. The holistic approach is taking in the way you feel and if you have any spirituality in you and your practice sessions and you're listening to other people and... Uh, trying to not be competitive. There's a great saying I heard from Bobby Shue, the trumpet player. He said, competition. If you want to compete, compete with that part of yourself that tends to be lazy. And I heard that and I said, oh boy, that's good. You were teaching at this point. Were you still performing as well? Oh yeah. I've been teaching and performing forever, but I don't do private lessons anymore. I was up in Indianapolis just two day, uh, three or four days ago, and I did like a two-hour presentation on beginning on improvisation couple of teenagers there and the rest of them were adults just trying to learn how to improvise. How has your playing evolved over it, the years? It has evolved a lot. It has evolved a lot and it's interesting when I listen to myself playing 30 years ago I just can't believe I played the way I played. I hear things there that I'd still play but the completeness of the solos and the continuity wasn't there then. I think when I got around 50 years old 
I think my saxophone said, I'm 74 now, I think my saxophone said, I don't think he's going to give up. So why don't we make it easier for him to play what he hears in his head every time he plays? Something happened around age 50 for me, and the saxophone got a lot easier to play. And it's been so much more fun the last 24 years than those first years, where I felt like I was struggling to get my ideas out and so forth. I don't know what happened. Maybe at that point, my thinking and playing became a little more holistic, where I wasn't afraid to think about stuff, and maybe I thought about stuff enough that it, I'd incorporated it into my playing, which made playing easier. You know, I wasn't playing by the seat of my pants. I wasn't just letting my fingers ramble. I was in control of what's going on. Probably like a good writer, starting out writing stuff. That didn't make much sense. The continuity wasn't there. But they learned the language and they learned to express themselves and all of a sudden they got a novel going from start to finish and it makes sense. Now I've got solos that make sense from the start to finish, whereas I didn't have originally. But that just came in time. So at 74, you're still learning? Oh, yeah. I'm anxious to play. After all this talking, I'm really anxious to play. <laughs> what does it mean for you to be named an NEA Jazz Master? <laughs> when the, when uh, Wayne first, I think it was Wayne when he first called, I thought it was a mistake. I thought he was uh, selling something. And he realized that I thought he was selling something. He said, this is not a solicitation. So then I perked up and listened. It's a big deal, because all of a sudden my name is with all these people that I've admired and listened to for ages. Jamie, many congratulations, and well, many thank thanks for giving me your time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. It's been a great day. One, two, one, two, three, four. That was jazz saxophonist, music educator, and 2014 NEA Jazz Master, Jamie Abersold. Jamie Abersold and the other 2014 Jazz Masters will receive their awards on January 13th, and the NEA is webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov for more information. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from B-Flat Blues, written and performed by Jamie Abersold. Excerpt from Basin Street Blues, composed by Spencer Williams and performed live by the Kid Ori Nine, used courtesy of MPL Communications, Inc. Special thanks to Chicago Jazz Magazine. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we're taking a break for Thanksgiving, but we're back on December 5th with 2014 NEA Jazz Master Richard Davis. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>